All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two of this program today, where we are seeing if there's a case, a scientific case for the hollow earth theory. And I believe there is. I believe at least it's stronger than the flat earth. And it really also kind of heals the problems with the mainstream yeah. round earth theory. The hollow earth, I believe, can explain a lot of mysteries. That said, who knows, but we will never know if we don't ask the questions. Correct. Before we go to, you know, try to understand how the globe would be if it's hollow and the details around it, I want you to throw out there a lot of corroborating weird factoids. Like, for instance, we know about freshwater uh, strange creatures, uh, old kind of creatures. We know about birds of passage. Could you go into some of this? Uh, one of my um, ancestors is uh, Sir James Ross, and he discovered the North Magnetic Pole in 1831. And he discovered some other things, too, besides the uh, the North Magnetic Pole. One of the things that he discovered was a tiny uh, seagull that is called, it's named after him, the Ross Gull. Mm. And uh, this gull, the thing that makes it strange, it is an Arctic gull, but in the winter, it doesn't fly south. It flies north. Now, I spoke a couple of years ago to the world's leading ornithologist and He's an expert on the Ross gull, and they still do not know where this gull nests for the winter. It is not like a penguin. I mean, it doesn't have a big, thick layer of fat. It can't take 80 below zero in the wintertime. It's, it's not, it doesn't have the ability to go months without eating. Mm. So they know that this gull goes somewhere warm, nests the winter but you don't know where it goes. And the bird is too small to carry a transmitter. And even if it did carry a transmitter, there aren't any satellites that can get a transmitter signal from the poles. They only work below the 60th parallel. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of challenges as to where this little guy goes in the wintertime. That's one of the things that we were going to try to discover on an Arctic expedition is where this gull might go because it's got to go someplace. Could it be warm know. zones we haven't discovered? It, it could be, but you know, we just don't know. We, we see lots of things on the ice that we can't explain. We see pollen, for instance. We see dead bees. Yeah. Uh, th- these also cannot exist where it's freezing cold. Bees are not a migrating insect. They <laughs> go out from the hive, they get yeah. pollen, and then they come back to the hive and they make honey. Hmm. They might go 10 miles, and yet we see bees dead on the ice in the Arctic, and we don't know where they come from. Hmm. 
And I've heard there's, uh, they often discover, the closer you get to the poles, the more they find uh, creatures that supposed to be extinct. Yes, exactly. Uh, every five years or so, there is a oceanographic expedition that goes to Malaysia. And in Malaysia, what they do is they sample sea life. Uh, specifically, they catalog rays, like stingrays and manta rays. Because as it turns out, uh, in the ocean, they're looking for uh, ecological stress, chemicals, pollution, temperature, acidity, things like this. They affect the sea life. And one of the forms of life that express this stress the most is are the rays. So when they go to Malaysia, they sample the rays. Typically, they see 20 to 25 new species of rays every time they go. This is normal, normal mutation, normal variation in the sea life. But in 2007, after this crazy ice anomaly that they had in the year 2007, in the winter of 2007, or in summer of 2007, the Arctic ice broke open. I mean, it didn't just break open in a small way. It calved off a big, big piece of ice. Now, there mm -hmm. was an anomalous wind that blew for weeks, and the jet stream was aimed in a different direction. Yes, that's true. There was also unusual warming in the Arctic that winter, and that's true. But somehow this, this ice layer broke open. And this wasn't an ordinary ice layer. This is what we in Arctic call red ice. Red ice uh, in satellite language means ice that lasts through the summer and that snowed on the next winter. Mm. So it's permanent ice. It's called red ice. This ice broke open for the first time in, I don't know, I mean, they don't really know, maybe 30,000 years. Wow. And it made this area of the Arctic navigable for the first time ever. No one has ever seen it from sea level. We, we only saw it. We only noticed it from space. Yeah. So uh, that was the same year that they did this trip to Malaysia. Only instead of finding 25 new species of rays, they found 1,500 new species of rays. Jeez. And these weren't mutations. You know, normally they see, you know, maybe a change in the tail or maybe a change in the wing tip or something like you would a fruit fly, some kind of mutation. Mm. These were brand new species of rays, whole big rays. Some of them were six feet across. Mm. Some of them had uh, dorsal fins on them. They had all kinds of weird designs. And the strange thing was many of them were extinct. We haven't seen them on our planet for a million years, and yet here they are swimming around. Mm. These were not mutations. These were whole new life forms. And the theory is, or at least the assumption that we can make from this, it's one of the assumptions, one of the questions that we ask, where did they come from? The only anomaly worldwide that we know of is this ice area that broke open, which which would point to an idea or at least a supposition that there's an opening in the crust under the sea mm. made it possible for life to swim 
from the inner sea to the outer sea. Mm. And that's why we saw this uptick in the species of rays. We saw frilled sharks. These are, these are sharks that are blind by our standards. They don't have eyes. But they're, they've been extinct for two million years, mm. and yet they were swimming around. Yeah. yeah, I've read about these things in mainstream science uh, magazines too. And of course, they speculate that, you know, they never mentioned uh, anything like a hole, but they speculate that, oh yeah, there must be some warm zones and here have they developed pristine and, you know, like the Lake Vostok phenomenon, there too we know. Yeah. That it's a pocket, right? And it's, what is it, 20 degrees Celsius or something? It's pretty hot in there, actually. Yeah. More than enough for life to go on. It's a warm a volcanic activity down there, and it's fresh water. Yeah. Yeah. And that you see, too. You see a lot of fresh water leaking out when you go to the poles. So, uh it could be, it could be the sea uh, on the other side. But I want to touch a couple of more points before we move up to uh, the hypothesis. And that is, first, I want to mention the book I, I read um, of Eric Norman called This Hollow Earth. He had an excellent chapter there where he covered the polar expeditions because everybody says, oh, yeah, but if it's a hollow earth, what about Amundsen and Nansen and Perry and Cook and all these people? They uh, found, no, I too thought that I've learned in school all these basic dogmas. But when I read that chapter, I was amazed because not only were they completely debunked that any of them found anything called a pole, but they debunked each other back in the day. <laughs> this should be public knowledge by now because they were competitors, right? Sure. So the hard competition. So what they did, of course, they fabricated their own stuff, but then they tried to, you know, reveal the competition. <laughs> so all of them revealed each other. <laughs> so you, people, you don't have to read the book I read. You can just read their own books about each other. <laughs> and there, we, then we have the fantastic situation that no one has actually very... And how could they know that they were at the pole back then? Did they have any instruments that could verify it? Oh, the only thing, like Admiral Byrd flew evidently in that direction in 1926. But the only way that they had of of navigating up there was a sextant from the plane. Now, he was good at it. He could use it. He was, he was one of the best in the world at using it. Uh, and this was, oh, by all intents and purposes, a most amazing expedition. The chances that they took, uh, not, not small chances. You know, he, he chartered a boat, the Chantilly. And the, it's not a big boat. It's, it wasn't big enough to put the airplane on. So they had to take the airplane apart into pieces and haul it up onto the boat with a crane. Then they sail the boat up to Spitsbergen, which they arrive, the, there, there's liquid. I mean, the, the sea is open all the way to the shore. Yep. But people don't realize how, how, how incredibly violent the tides are at these high altitude, high latitudes. Um, you know, in Florida, high tide and low tide is a few feet, you know. Right. And in, in Hawaii, there's almost no tides at all. Mm -hmm. But you get to Spitsbergen, the tides are like 100 feet. <laughs> and 
It's pretty dramatic. Yeah, it's really dramatic, and it's a tremendous movement of water. It's a it's a rush like a river. There's only a few hours a day when the sea is is even stable in mm. between tides. Mm. So mm. the Chantilly arrives, and it's beginning to snow already because the the summer is almost over. But they arrive there. And they build a kind of floating dock to get from the boat to the to the rocky shore. And they start unloading the boat as fast as they can. But then they get to the plane. The plane is heavy, you know, wing parts and fuselage parts and tires and all this stuff. So they start hustling and getting all this stuff ashore. And literally, they almost died getting the plane off the Chantilly and onto the shore so they could get the boat back out away from the shore far enough where it wouldn't be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So they, they do get the plane on the ground, and then they start this process. It's snowing, and the wind is blowing, it's gray, it's freezing cold. They build, they rebuild this plane on the, on the rocky shore, on the, on the gravel. Mm-hmm. They get the plane all back together, they get it all gassed up, and to... Uh, uh, Bird and his engineer get in the plane and they take off. <laughs> they, they, the, the plane has these big balloon tires and it's able to take off on the, on the gravel. So it takes off on the beach and he heads north using the sextant as uh, a tool for navigation. But keep in mind, there's no oxygen, you know, in 1926. Nobody flies at, you know, 20,000 feet. Mm. They flew. At 2,500 feet so they could see the ground. Right. If they got any higher than that, it, they were flying in the clouds, and uh, they couldn't tell where they were going. So they'd get these openings in the clouds, and they would take a quick sextant reading, and that's how they navigated. Right. So he flies up there, says he flies over the North Pole, and flies back, but he gets back early. They, they figured out his airspeed, and he said, well, I had a tailwind. I had a tailwind going up. I had a tailwind coming back, and that's why I'm back early. <laughs> but he says that he flew over green areas, which right. he should not have been flying over if he flew to the North Pole. But hang on. You're not uh, reciting the diaries now. No, I'm not. I'm just – Because you, you discount the diaries, right? I discount the diaries. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know – uh, uh, Mr. Bielek and I, I've seen the diaries for myself and I don't believe that they were created by Bird or by any relative of Bird. But I watched all the documentaries that Bird did and he did a lot of them on TV. Mm. And uh, I read his writings and he was a, a, a war hero. He was a world explorer, but he didn't write that diary. But the point. No, but 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 I th- I think you're right that he, of all these chaps, he may be the one who got the closest because the, those other chaps they were using skis and dogs, you know they were on their feet. I don't think you can do it. I just don't think you can do it. I mean, no. they, we're not talking about you know the Bonneville salt flats up there. <laughs> we're talking about jagged, you know, hundred and fifty foot 
shards of ice sticking up. We're talking about yeah. movement all the time because there's tr uh, tremendous forces from the Gulf Stream and from the wind and everything. And ice floating on the water is very dangerous. Even on a lake, it's dangerous. But up there, yeah. we're talking the roughest, most vicious ocean on the planet. And people... Antarctica is as big as USA and Mexico together. So you, you are saying to me that you and a couple of dogs and a couple of ski are going to cross that vast area by foot and you're going to have nothing of modern equipment and backup and all that stuff. Yep. And you're going to do it in freezing cold and you're going to survive. You're going to plant that flag and come back. Uh I, I, I can kind of forgive them that they took some liberties, you know. <laughs> Warm, smelly uh, piece of meat up there. There are polar bears that can run 40 miles an hour in that stuff. Yeah, in the north. Oh, my God, yeah. And they'll they'll track you down. Oh, you'll be dinner. You know, I told you my ancestor, uh, Sir James Ross, found the North Magnetic Pole, but he did it on his second try. His first attempt... Both of his ships were crushed in the ice. Mm. They had to offload all their stuff onto the ice and stay the winter up there and wait for spring. Yeah, but the magnetic pole is feasible because that's much more to the left, right? It's up in the Canada somewhere. No, it's it's over off of uh, San Josef Islands that way. But uh, Franz Josef Island, okay, that way. It's, mm. it's doable, but still, it's treacherous. Oh, he yeah. had his ships first, the second time he made it. When was this, by the way? 1831. Okay. The next time it was done, validated, it was done by submarine. They went under the ice, and then they punched up through the ice when they got to the magnetic pole. Right. Okay, so let's let's try to conceive how, especially these entrances, because that's one of the most interesting, exciting, thrilling, mind-blowing aspect of it all. Because when we look at Google Maps... You have to admit that it's pretty suspicious that they just present these cartoon images of the poles. Yes. And all the other areas in the world uh, allegedly is detailed photos. But you come to the poles and it's just this boring, it's all that completely artificial, yeah. white, grayish white. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is in 2006, they passed the Data Denial Act. So all the satellites that are up there that can make actual images of of the ground, weather images, they're not allowed to broadcast images above the 60th parallel. Mm. They're not allowed to. You can't, uh, and you won't find an image anywhere that's real. And the and the reason is for national defense, because that imagery can be fed into targeting systems and be used for for cruise missiles to cross the arctic to cross the poles mm. and, and uh, be used to attack so in times of conflict or war according to this uh, 2006 law that's not only with the noaa but also umitsat which is the system you guys are under over there mm. both systems uh, forbid the publication of real images above the 60th parallel mm. But still, you have, uh, you know, the flat earth people, they point to many things. Oh, they're not flying over the poles. Well, I know there's a scientific explanation for that, too. And that has to do with the magnetism, right? Navigation. Yeah, probably, because, I mean, the satellites fly over the poles all the time. You can, 
if you go way up north, you'll see a lot of satellites, a lot of polar satellites coming over. And they're, you know, they're going 17, 18,000 miles an hour. So they don't stay in view very long, one or two minutes. That's about it. Uh, and the space shuttle uh, goes over it too, which I've yeah. always thought was remarkable because I thought the space shuttle would have uh, would have imagery from it, but they didn't. They didn't uh, produce of it. Course. And then the space station, International Space Station, goes around the planet, but it doesn't go over the poles directly. And they used to give us a feed off of the International Space Station, our cable channel. It ran 24 hours a day, and I used to watch it all the time. Yeah, NASA TV, right? Right, right, NASA TV. But now they switch around. They they run loops and they run... Yeah, they have mandatory delays. And no, no wonder, do you remember the big, huge scandal when they released uh, uh, the tether accident, remember? Yeah. Of course they have to censor this shit because they can't control what's coming out if it's live. <laughs> yeah, that tethered, the tethered experiment, by the way, for those of you not, not familiar with it, there's a there's a, <clears throat> a phenomenon called the dynamo. It is, it, is, it is the idea where ions moving past a wire will induce a current flow in that wire. And they figured, well the space station is flying at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's pretty fast, and it's going pretty close to the ionosphere, so we should be able to stretch out a tether, you know, behind the space shuttle or behind the station, and we should be able to, to measure the current flow on that. Well, that's exactly what they did. And the, the tether was made of Kevlar mm -hmm. and wire. It should have been able to take thousands of degrees. That thing exploded When they stretch it out, they pass through the, the uh, ion field and boom, that thing vaporized. Some say it was uh, sabotage. Well, it could be, but one thing's for darn sure. Whoever uh, uh, put that experiment together, they said, oh, yeah, we'll probably see a couple hundred volts. I think they were way off. Mm. It was probably a couple million volts. Right. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, you mentioned in part one the Borealis, Aurora Borealis and Aurora Australis. Mm. Now, uh, let's start with the mainstream. But it's Granted, it's still a mystery, but they have reached some kind of consensus explanation. What is that? <laughs> well, I wouldn't use the word consensus. Oh. Um, they, they did get an image of auroras over both poles at the same time and this that's not supposed to be possible is it no it really threw everybody everybody was going what the heck is this uh, we thought the auroras were caused by the solar wind you know so in the summertime it strikes the north and the wintertime it strikes the south but now we're seeing you know over both poles we have to we have to do something we got to do something right now hmm. <clears throat> so they put together the themis probe The Themis probe was basically a hollow nose cone. It had five small satellites in it. They launched it up, put the five satellites into different orbits, so they're going around the planet at different speeds. And every once in a while, the satellites all line up, kind of like Jacob's Ladder, and they turn the satellites on and take a measurement. So in 2006, or might have been in 2009, the satellites line up, They take the measurement, and in between satellites three and four, some kind of energy blast, they called it a cosmic bullet, just 
pops out of nowhere. And, of course, the explosion goes out in 360 degrees in all directions. It passes satellite four and five, and it goes heading out to space. It passes satellites three, two, and one, hits the Earth, and boom, there's the aurora. Hmm. So they said, well, that's it then. Uh, the auroras are caused by cosmic bullets. And that was it. One experiment, one time, one paper. So it's not a consensus by any means. But that's what they published. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't think, legitimate. I think the auroras are caused by the same electrojet coming out of the center of the Earth that comes out from any other spinning structure like a quasar. Mm-hmm. And these high-velocity magnetic fields are drawing ions with it. The ions strike the upper atmosphere, transfer that energy to ions that are in the atmosphere, like cosmic rays, and they emit light by doing it. So it could be, then, that it's the light of our outer sun meeting the light of our inner sun. Correct. And that is a spectacle of... Vision. It's a transfer of photonic wavelengths from the inner source of light to our upper atmosphere. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a theory as good as any because th- that can explain that it's possible to have it at the same time. But aren't we talking really about if we're talking about a north and a south pole? Aren't we really talking about energy coming out, expressive energy on top? And energy going in at the bottom is not how it works. No, it would be it would be coming out of the north and south pole like the flux line, not not like magnetic flux where you have, you know, say the north flowing to the south. Mm. It doesn't. That's it, what I thought. That's not how it works. No, because the flux lines, and we have a lot of theories about this, mm. a lot of magnetic measurements that are made. Flux lines don't vary like that. We. They're, <clears throat> for some reason, they seem to line up in nodes like a fabric, and uh, they're unbroken. But that's not the way the auroras appear. The auroras appear in like ribbons, uh, flowing and ebbing back and forth. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense that these would just simply be magnetic transfers of energy. They are ionic. That is to say, they're photonic uh, photons of energy that are transferring from uh, massless uh, particles that come out of the the Earth from the north and the south, and they strike the upper atmosphere, and they transfer this energy to uh, things like ozone. Ozone is is three oxygen atoms together. O three. It's a it's a a radical that has an extra electron. It's very reactive if it gets close. They, they say it's very thin at the poles. Yes, it's very thin, exactly. And we have reason to believe that the crust itself is very thin at the oh. poles, that it actually be because of the rotation of the crust and the idea right, that, right. that maybe the planet has been expanding all these millions yeah, of years. Yeah. The, the crust near the equator is very thick, right. but the crust near the poles is very thin because it's been drawn out. <laughs> Maybe so thin that there's actually holes there. <laughs> That's the point, right? right. But, but you know these uh, sayings that if you go south, Australia, South America, then everything goes around in whirls in an opposite direction. Like if you flush the toilet or 
you know, whirlwind, what's it called? Coriolis effect is... Is this true or is it a myth? No, no, it, it's true. In in the South, because of the of the way that the Earth is, is rotating, uh, the water, if it's left by itself, will go down the drain clockwise. But in the North, in the Northern Hemisphere, if the water is left by itself, it will go down the drain counterclockwise. Now, you could switch it. You can reach down and you could swirl the water and it'll go down the drain the other way. But uh, if it's left to itself, it builds on its own rotational energy. Mm. In the North, it goes down counterclockwise. In the South, it goes down clockwise. So maybe the energy in the Earth is not going from north to south then. Maybe it's just the direction it goes that's different from north to south. Because it would be weird if it went from north to south all the time. Because uh, if we have, and we know no, we have, this uh, change of polar plus or minus, we just have a, had a reversal of the sun, right? Yeah, a pole shift. And and the pole shifts happen, we, we, we see this... We think they happen about every 100,000 years, which puts us overdue for one. Yeah. Uh, but it is not a, uh, it's not a gradual thing. It doesn't pull shift over, say, 500 years. Um, what happens is the magnetic field begins to undulate back and forth. It's, it wobbles back and forth. And not much, just a few degrees, maybe five or eight degrees. And then... It flips, and it flips very quickly, like 90 days it flips. And if that happens, we have all kinds of theories as to what you know the effects will be on the planet. I don't think on the planet itself it's going to be that big of a deal. It's not going to be like, like the movie, uh, you know, 2012. Mm. But uh, it is going to probably mess with the navigation system of insects and birds and maybe... Oh. Back and bees. Yeah, sure. So the navigation systems are going to take a while to adapt. And that means there could be a hiccup in the way crops grow. Right. And it could be one year. It could be 10 years. If it's 10 years, if it's seven years, like the Egyptians, you remember, they had to put together yeah, yeah. seven years of, of yeah. food. If it's seven years, we could be in big trouble. Right. But I, I heard this already happened. It hasn't happened on Earth yet, then. No, it, it has happened. The magnetic switch, I mean. Yes, sir. We we have a recovered igneous rock. Igneous rock is a rock that is formed. No, I mean now. Uh, yes, in ancient time. But hasn't the magnetic poles on Earth switched recently? No, it hasn't happened in the last week that I know of, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only the sun, right? Yeah. <laughs> We are seeing the undulation. We are seeing the wobbling. Yeah. We measure this very closely. And now it, it is moving at the rate of about uh, 10 miles per year, which is like across town. This is it's, – it's, it's serious because in airports that are pretty close to the, to the equator, like down in Florida, they've had to go remove the numbers off the runways – and repaint the numbers because the the cardinal points on the compass have changed. Jeez. So we are 
And it, by the way, it's heading towards Siberia. This The pole is moving across town towards Siberia at the rate of about 10 miles per year. And it's just increasing in speed, right? Yes. At some point, the rate of change, what we call the instantaneous rate of change or the slope, is going to go up. It's going to go from 10 to 25 to 50 to 500, and then we're, we're going to be in a full-on pole, uh, pole change. Yeah. So we can kind of, we should be able to measure it, shouldn't we? When it will happen, I mean. Maybe, but we're in the flat part of the of the equation right now. When it begins to, to increase, when the function begins to, the slope begins to change, then we're going to be able to make better predictions. But logarithmic systems are not very predictable in the beginning. Not at all. Okay, but how, what's the minimum of time we have before it happens, the switch? Uh, next Friday is the minimum amount of time. I don't know. It could, Jeez. <laughs> it could, it, you know, the rate of change, when it begins to change, it's going to, the rate is going to change quickly. Okay. The exponent is going to change quickly. Okay. Huh. But it's also weird that, you know, they say that once upon a time Antarctica was dry. Has the physical location of the North and South Pole always been at the same place? I don't believe so. I believe the continents have drifted around the planet as the diameter of the planet has changed. You can see this in regressive models uh, because we know, because all of the continental shelves have such a unique shape that when we uh, run models backwards and match all those continental shelves back together, not the dry land that you see above the sea, but the continental shelves, which are a couple hundred miles off the coast of these continents that we have on the Earth. When you match all these back together, Antarctica and the what's called the archipelago, the ring of of islands and everything that are around the ocean that makes up our Arctic region, they're in completely different locations. But how could that uh, square with the idea of huge holes in the north and the south? Because if, granted, there are huge entrances, they couldn't move too. Uh, no, well, what would happen is the holes would stay pretty much the same. But you've got to remember, when you're starting with a pretty much solid planet, and then you're expanding it from, oh, let's say, a uh, uh, thousand miles in diameter to 7,100 miles in diameter, or 2,000 miles in diameter to 7,100 miles in diameter, you're going to conserve momentum like an ice skater, you know, when she's spinning really fast, she, her arms are in really tightly, but when she lets her arms out, she slows way down. It's the same thing with the crust. The crust slows down. But the mass of the Earth stays in equatorial positions. So the poles get thinner and thinner and thinner, but we're talking the, the surface is you know, just a few thousand feet. What do we have? Maybe uh, eight miles uh, from the top of our atmosphere uh, to the to the sea level is about eight miles. And then we have about another uh, three and a half miles of ocean underneath that, maybe four miles if we go all the way down to the bottom of the trench. So that's like 11 miles that makes up our troposphere, our 
Hang on, hang on. How much is 11 miles in kilometers? Half audience use meters. <laughs> I don't know why we don't. I hate the English. <laughs> it's easier with meters, you know. Somewhere around, uh, you know, 11, 11 and a half, 12 kilometers okay. is, is the whole troposphere from the highest jet that we have that flies right. to the bottom of the trench okay. uh, of the ocean, you know, is not very much. And then no. we've drilled, what, another... 11 and a half kilometers in, that's about it. That's all we know of our crest is about, about 30 kilometers from the top of subspace, lower, lower space, to the deepest hole we've drilled in the ground. That's it. Mm. We don't know much about. So the, the crust itself is, is you know, 1,100, 1,200 kilometers thick. That's moving. So it's like a, a big lump of, uh, of, uh, of dough. And so the outer surface is moving a lot, but the interior uh, is not maybe not moving so much because you're actually stretching the skin like you're inflating a balloon. So the skin is moving a lot, but the interior, not so much. Hmm. Yeah, I would rather live on the inside, actually. It mo must be much more stable and pristine and... And they, they would also expand, of course, like us. They would get more room yeah. as the Earth expands. I'm assuming you could live in there, and we're gonna we're gonna look at that. But uh, a few more circumstantial stuff first. Uh, for example, if there is huge, because the, the, all the mainstream hollow Earth theories grants that there is entrances at the pole, and there can be holes there. But some say. That because the Earth is spinning, right? And you've been talking about that yourself, you know, the phenomenon of what happens when stuff spins. I mean, we could mention Kosarev, we could mention uh, torsion, we could mention that anything in the galaxy from, from the smallest particles to galaxy spins. Right. And this spin... Tesla also talked about it, uh, would create, like you said, these dimension holes. So if we went into the poles, the openings in the poles, who's to say that we actually come into the inner Earth? Maybe we come into another dimension. Yes. That's what some are thinking, that these are dimension holes more than physical. Yes, there are a lot of thoughts like that. And the biggest proponents of these ideas about these these gates or these portals or these dimensional shifts also say that the consciousness of the person that's making this journey also counts into this uh, this passage and uh, that was one of the reasons why when we when we were putting together the expedition and we still are by the way i just can't give you any any details no but let's talk more about that at the end yeah yeah uh, mm. it, it, it seems that the attitude, the reason behind uh, your wanting to go makes a difference. The, the Tibetans talked a lot about yeah. this. About You can't just walk into the cave, you know, unclean and walk <laughs> to Shambhala. You have to have a mindset for it. And this is why it's such an affront to a lot of these traditions when we think about the nazis simply just putting together their war machine and their their technology and their submarines mm. and they just went there and took it over mm. no took it over being taken over if anything because if they took it over i don't think they would sit and meditate for 50 years i think they would come back 
on us with everything they got. And that hasn't happened yet overtly. No. So, no, it's not that easy. I agree. But you don't discount then the possibility that it could be dimensional entrances more than anything. Not a Dr. Fred Robb, because if he's saying we have particles popping into our dimension, who's to say beings don't pop into our dimension? Yeah. And then, of course, we have the perfect scenario with, uh, you know, enter UFOs, right? Yeah, ships. Why not ships entering into our dimension using the same, you know, technology, the same uh, passage and the same ability to navigate? In fact, as a physicist, if I sit here and say, okay, we're going to we're gonna put some people in an aluminum can with some supplies, and we're going to go fly to Alpha Centauri. That's the closest star to us. Well, good luck. I mean, that's six years away at the speed of light. But we can't fly the speed of light. We can fly maybe, mm. you know, 100,000 miles an hour, not 100,000 miles a minute or 100,000 miles a second. 100,000 miles an hour. So it's going to take us 180 years to get there. Well, nobody's going to live that long. And that's just the nearest star. If we wanted to go someplace else, someplace, you know, a thousand light years away, forget about it. Mm. So it must be another way to move across or between vast locations in space. Yeah. And even if it's not a dimension hole, even if it should just be, (laughs) I mean, in this perspective, I have to see just (laughs) be entrances to an inner earth. It would still go a long way to explain the UFOs because um, a civilization in there would have better grounds to develop faster than us and could, you know, reach anti-gravity. Sure. And in, in fact, many of these myths, they talk about real, uh, this power that they were harvesting straight from the air, this almost supernatural power mythical power uh, i guess it could be equivalent to chi prana pneuma as the ancient greek called it orgon i believe reich we're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. it could make sense of because if they're not coming from other stars uh, they could come from I- inside the earth and indeed many reports talk about these phenomenons coming out of the oceans too well if you think about and tesla thought about this all the time he wrote about it And we think about it, too. I mean, absolute zero is a a long way from where we are. We're at um, somewhere around 273 degrees Kelvin. That's a lot of energy. Mm. That's a lot of energy just hanging out uh, compared to absolute zero. And what Nikola Tesla said is there's a way to tap into all that energy around us. And uh, unfortunately for him... He couldn't figure out a way to meter it and sell it, so Westinghouse and Edison were not willing to invest in it. Yeah. Mr. Morgan. Yeah, sure. Morgan and and Westinghouse. And I've done a lot of contracts for Westinghouse. They're an enormous company. I think they're uh, probably the 150th largest corporation on the planet now. But uh, they used to be much bigger. They've uh, sold off a lot of stuff and sold off what they call non-core technologies and non-core businesses. But these are the people that that shaped modern society. They told people where they could live. You can live where we stretch our wires. You can't live anyplace else. No, 
that they are keeping us in the dark ages, that's for sure. But then we have uh, this phenomenon um, of uh, underground caves. Uh, we have, uh, uh, what's his face? There's Richard Souders, I think. Dr. Souders, he's written about this. It is suspicious. There are some, so now we're going to enter conspiratorial domains. And oh, okay. I think it's hugely suspicious that you have the Pentagon and the Intel and all these people are investing in huge complex underground structures. What's up with that? Yeah. And we have. Uh, and then, yeah, you want no. to take it from there? You know, they think it's conspiracy, but you can go pull the budgets up for yourself, and I do. Yeah. The CIA, DARPA, they they don't invest a small amount of money. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars that they invest on a regular basis, mm. not just once, but all the time. And what do they invest in? You think, oh, it's got to be weapon systems. It's got to be surveillance systems. Uh, what if I told you almost all? All the movies made in Hollywood are financed with money that comes from the CIA or DARPA. Right. Yeah. So you think, wow, you mean our entertainment industry? Yes. <laughs> and how about all the medical research, all the advances in cures for cancer and uh, using viruses to transfer genetic information uh, for for curing, not just treating, but curing diseases. All of this funded by DARPA, by by military systems. Why? And it's it shocked me the first time I did my research on it because I was reading an article by an enormous breakthrough that was used that was uh, published by a university where they had used viruses to transfer genetic information into, say, the pancreas. To teach it how to make insulin again. This is a cure for diabetes, for crying out loud. Mm. This is one of the greatest breakthroughs in, ever. So I said, wow, where did they get the money? They got the money from this foundation. So I said, okay, let's look up the foundation and find out where they got their money. It came from DARPA. Well, why, would, why is DARPA interested in a cure for insulin? They're not. What they're interested in is the mechanism for using viruses to transfer genetic material. Look at, look at they had a, a, a plan to gather all of the genetic information for just about everybody on the planet. They were going to catalog it. And several governments decided, we can't allow the military to no. gather all the genetic information for all the people on the planet. They, they would be up to no good. So they said, fine. We'll fund a company that sells it yeah. to people. People yeah. pay. Yeah, find your ancestry. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to give a bullshit name. <laughs> right? And I, I, I suggest everybody does that. The name isn't important, Al. The, the name is not important. What's important? Yeah, but they can't tie it to you. If it's not, They're not trying to tie it to an individual. What they're trying to do is they're trying to catalog every single genetic oh, trait that they can. Right. And the reason they're doing this is they figure if I believe, this is my conspiracy theory, yeah, yeah. It, they believe they can develop a viral weapon to take out a specific genetic trait. Right. They could build a weapon that only kills 
a few hundred thousand people yeah. on the planet. No one would miss them. Yeah. But it would kill off a specific enemy of theirs. Right. I see if if aliens have infiltrated us that's an aspect Absolutely. um you know you know if if someone thinks they're chosen like uh, let's say Aryans or yeah. Jews both of them have supreme race theories or what if they're looking for alien dna what if they're looking for captain america they're looking for that marker that comes from another world because maybe they have this this genetic information they want to know which humans have that genetic information in them mm. or maybe they know that there are some genetic manifestations of some kind of spirituality you know if some people have certain abilities maybe they found some genetic pattern there yeah that's what they want to destroy we they can't have people become too aware there's so much this could Exactly. I, I, you know what? I'm totally on board with that conspiracy theory. The only problem we we're not knowing what, why. <laughs> we we're knowing what, but we don't know I'm exactly. Taking my DNA to the grave with me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to think that's the smartest thing. But uh, you know, even in the grave, that you get your DNA. <laughs> well, so I suppose so. But uh, I I don't think they're up to any good with it. No. No, that's that's one thing we can know for sure. But there's another suspicious thing, and that's these nuclear tests. I mean, I can see why North Korea would do tests, okay? Because yep. they are like a child who just got firecrackers and trying to figure it out. But why <laughs> are these nations who have had atom bombs since the Second World War still doing it? And why is it always underground and underwater? If there was a civilization inside of Earth... It would go a long way to, you know, annoy them, wouldn't it? Well, it probably could. I mean, the reason we've done almost 3,000 nuclear tests on purpose. Yeah. Since uh, that's, that's a lot. I mean, two of them we blew up. Several of them we have blown up in our atmosphere. Yeah. And one of the things that we discovered in this, this experiment, which was called Operation Fishbowl, um, or Starfish, we 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 discovered the electromagnetic pulse and the early weapons were not very good at it. And we discovered it by accident. It knocked out the lights in Hawaii when we blew up an atom bomb on uh, the atoll in, in South Pacific, 600 miles away. Mm. But um, the North Koreans are masters at microelectronics. And <clears throat> what they wanted to do was validate an experiment to develop not a weapon that would level cities, but a weapon that would optimize the electromagnetic pulse. And the last weapon that they blew up, which they, we estimate somewhere around 200 kilotons, if it's optimized to develop an electromagnetic pulse, and it could be properly placed at the right al altitude, two of those weapons could uh, conceivably really do some serious electromagnetic damage to a, a country like, say, the United States. Like a Carrington event? Yeah. I, I don't know that it would be... It, it would depend on how much voltage it could generate in the air, and it would depend on if we had any warning or not, because if we had warning, we could disconnect a lot of our substations and save the big auto-tap transformers, which are so hard to replace. Mm -hmm. We don't build them, for one thing, and for another thing, they cost about a half a million dollars a piece. It would take 
years, maybe decades, to replace them all if they if they burned up uh, in a in an electromagnetic pulse weapon. Because yeah, but can't they be protected by something? No, nah, well, they can be, uh, but the, that protection has not been funded. It's theoretical, the which is insane because the sun can do this any time. Yes, exactly. The only surefire way to do it is to disconnect the bus bars in the substation. These are the these are the big wrist size metal bars that are that are in the top of the substation. It's like a big knife switch. And most of the big substations have redundant transformers. That is, that is to say they have one that they're not using and one that they are using. And they service them back and forth. That way they don't have to cut off all the lights in the entire city to service the transformer. But if and, – and the way they work is you take in 150, 200,000 volts off the high-tension lines. It steps that down. It steps it down to about 14,000 volts and then that is stepped down further and further and further by other transformers, which increases the current and allows them to distribute it locally to your homes and your buildings and such. But if there's an electromagnetic pulse, the all those lines that are stretched out all over the city, that go down every street, every building, every every house, those act like a big antenna. On the low-voltage side, we're used to seeing, what, 440 or 220 or even down to 110. Mm. But when the electromagnetic pulse occurs, that voltage jumps on those wires, it goes backwards to the to the transformer, and it gets stepped back up to millions of volts. And what happens, it hits those big aluminum lines that we see stretched on the big high-tension lines across our countries, and it explodes those wires, just explodes them. But not before it totally melts down the windings in that transformer because the transformer is only made to handle maybe 100,000 volts, maybe 200,000 volts. Mm -hmm. You put five or six million volts on there, it jumps through all the insulation and it fries that transformer. It cannot be used again. It needs to be replaced. It could take decades to replace these things. They're very, very expensive and very time-consuming to make. Because you, they're filled with oil, and that oil has to be vacuumed for hours and hours and hours to get all the air out of it in order to build that transformer and seal it up. Because if there's any air inside that transformer, it will it will melt down. Yeah. It has to be – it's very painstaking to make these big transformers. And they'll all be destroyed. So we we have a theory that we could protect them with – you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment on a substation. But that's not proven. Oh. No one's ever tested that. Hmm. Uh, and I would, that's a terrible test to try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's not let the weapon be developed in the first place. But it's too late. That weapon is developed. And it's small. And it's powerful. And it's very difficult to detect. Probably cheap, too, compared to an atom bomb. Yeah, radiation from... from uh, Uranium, you know, it's easy to pick up. Plutonium, not very easy at all. It's an alpha decay. You have to be right next door, like a few feet away to detect it. But, but will it be as mortal as, I mean, a directly mortal? Will people die from this blast? No, 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 no. So it's a, it's a more human bomb, uh, humanitarian bomb, I mean. It's just doing physical damage. Uh, you 
you say that because all of our societies we rely on stuff to yeah i know i know yeah back to the stone age. So we we need gasoline we need drugs we yeah. need uh refrigeration planes in order to sustain our cities if you knock out electricity for a year you're talking probably a third of your population dying especially and it's going to be cannibalism yeah and the sick, you know, they would die very quickly, but the rest of the people would suffer. Yeah, but in, in the huge cities, there's no food source. People will start eating each other, I'm telling you. Well, they would pour out into the countryside for sure, but yeah. I don't think people in the city are going are gonna to plant corn and wait for it to grow. <laughs> They're going to take whatever they can get. If you want to see an example yeah. of what it's like, yeah. just look at what's happening in South Africa right now. What's happening? That's what happens when people go in and they take over the farms and they eat all the food, they eat all the seed, they eat all the livestock, and then the people start starving. Oh, you mean these emigrants from Zimbabwe that's uh, entering into South Africa? Yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, going in and killing you know, farmers that have been on this land for 200 years uh, they built rivers and dams and irrigation systems and they they crossbred plants to get the ones that could grow the best in the area they have vast seed storage and irrigation systems but the invaders the ones that are coming in and taking over these farms they don't know any of that skill no. so they're just eating all the food in the field and killing all the livestock and eating all the seed and now they're starving. Oh, speaking of seed and seed stocks, what about, you know, the weird things that's going on up here? Any theory about that? Well, that's a very interesting subject. And I've, I've never seen the seed vault, but I think the seed vault is a brilliant idea. And where they built it is a brilliant idea because it doesn't need any, any electricity to preserve all that stuff. But... Um, if genetically modified foods end up really doing the wrong thing, in other words, we're eating and eating, but we're not getting any nutrition from it, mm. then you basically have to burn everything. You've got to burn everything in the field and turn over the soil. And then you have to go to the seed vault and start over again. Mm. It, it could save the human race. Because the timing is interesting because it's at the same time as the GMO folks are forcing their stuff out there. If they're not forcing it directly, they're doing it indirectly by polluting organic uh, areas. So it's just a matter of time before everything is GMO in the in the. Now, you don't understand how, you know, when the wind blows and the insects yeah. blow and the seeds and the birds fly – Seeds drop into the next field and the next one and the next one. It's like an infection. And, and that's just natural, but they're doing that deliberately too. The uh, farmers who refuse to take it, what do they do? We know this. It's protesters and everything. They surround it and then they pollute their farms. And then they have the, they, they have the indecency on top of that to then go to the farmer and say, Hey, these uh, seeds are... Um, what's it called when you own something? They are... It's patent. Yeah, by us, so now you have to pay us. 
we just fucked up your your farm. <laughs> no, you have to pay us. It's insane, Brooks. Oh, we have seen a couple farmers fight back. There's one in uh, Canada. Oh yeah, one a, a landmark lawsuit. And uh, there are some some foods that have not been allowed to modify yet. I know the wheat fields in the northwest of of the United States. They've tried to develop genetically modified wheat. They have it, I think, in some countries, but it has not been allowed in the wheat-growing country of the Northwest yet. And thank God for Russia and India. They are fighting this tooth and nail, too. Well, it's great when powerful countries like that are able to do it, and they're, mm. they're, they're burning the stuff in the fields. They're not letting it in. Mm. But, you know, we have Monsanto, which is a, a very old corporation, uh, very wealthy, and they have been taking their executives and sticking them into the decision-making agencies of these countries. So it's not... Not just those countries, your own country too. Oh, absolutely. And it's not Congress that's making the laws. Congress in our country has lost control. The agencies are the ones that write the laws. They're the ones that assess the taxes and the fees and the rules and everything. The only trouble is we have no representation in that government at all. Exactly. You know what, Brooks? You need to come back and we have to cover this uh, in its own show because it is a show for its own. And by the way, I recommend your book that I have and I've read called Alienated Nation. It's an interesting twist because everybody talks about these secret organizations that's running the world. And... In a way, it's true, but you know, the biggest secret organization is right in front of our nose, like you're pointing out. Absolutely. And it's a huge bureaucracies. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah. and it's not just bureaucracies, it's not just red tape. And we we'll probably need to cover this in another show. Yeah, yeah. These agencies work very effectively at stopping competitors with the corporations from which the officials in those organizations came from. Yep. In other words, oil companies, car companies, drug companies, food companies, chemical companies, their scientists, their executives, their managers are the ones that are running yep. those agencies, departments, bureaus, and administrations inside our own country. And we all know the definition of that. That's called fascism. It, That's exactly what Mussolini and those guys were doing. Well, of course, and Roosevelt loved Mussolini, and so did Truman, and they they set it up. Our government is set up. The agency government is set up just like that. Hmm. And then Jimmy Carter came along, and he created the Senior Executive Service, which basically gives these guys a permanent job with union protection. And so the fascism is guaranteed to continue forever. Okay. We are straying now. We'll, we'll get to that in his own show. Now let's go back to the whole earth. And I want you to explain, because the first thing people say is, how could they live inside the earth? Because uh, what about gravity? Well, gravity... And that's easy easy to explain, isn't it? Gravity is going to be different. I, I, You know, what we experience as the acceleration toward the center of the Earth, 32 feet per second per second here on the surface, is different than the gravity on the inside of the crust. Gravity in a valley is different than gravity on a mountain, if you really want to be a purist about it. But inside the crust, 900 miles 
closer to the core, gravity is going to be less. So where would gravity... <laughs> they think today it's in the core of the Earth. There, but that's not according to the whole Earth model, is it? There is gravity in the core, but there's a lot more mass in the crust. So you, would ha you have gravity on the outside of the crust, but you also have gravity on the inside of the crust, sort of like standing in China on the other yeah, side of the planet. Exactly. Or, or our heads are on opposite sides yeah. of the planet, but we're both feet to the middle. Yeah. But there's a middle of the crust, too, a tremendous amount of mass. And the centripetal force of the Earth rotating, which is not very much, uh, seriously. But uh, I would say, I don't know what the calculations are, but we, we could probably get there uh, to figure out what the force is, what the acceleration is on the inside of the crust. But it totally explains why it breaks down when you go far enough north or south that you can't use the compass and all that. It makes total sense of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And because you don't have a mainstream um, explanation that makes sense of it, but this would make sense of it. And I'll tell you another interesting anecdote. You know, they had this atom bomb in 58 and 59 that the Allies blew on Antarctica. And the interesting thing about this, it was unofficial because officially we're not supposed to do anything like that. But the interesting thing about the readings is that they can't say that there's, there's anomalies uh, regarding the reading. Uh, they can't say if it's done under the earth or in the atmosphere. And there is one theory that they can explain why. And that is the hollow earth, because if they were doing it in the whole, it would be both in the atmosphere and under the earth, if you see what I mean. Interesting. Right? Look into that. Yeah. Because you have the scientific skill to understand this thing. I read it. It had nothing to do with whole earth. They didn't think of that. But they explained the awareness of the reading. And I immediately realized if it was in the whole, then it would explain this thing. Yeah. And that brings me to uh, the crescendo of our talk today. And that is that if there's a civilization there, it explains why the military is guarding these zones as if it's Eden themselves. Sure. And people say, oh, why don't we just go up there? What about all the people who have been up there? Why don't you just take a U-boat, a boat, a plane? Why isn't it that simple, Brooks? Well, we could charter a plane and do it. We we raised the money to uh, rent a 727. We were going to fly directly over it. But the lowest that they would fly is 20,000 feet uh, because that's just their rules. They, they don't do scud running. They're not going to fly below the clouds. The lowest they would fly was 20,000 feet, which we would see nothing. We'd mm. just take pictures of, of a grayed out sky. From the sea, there is no way to do it because it's covered in ice. You need an icebreaker to do it. Uh, there's no way to do it by dog sled. I, I can tell you right now, <laughs> we're not talking about you know smooth snow like you know in in, in Colorado uh, in something in a big bowl. No, no, no. We're talking pieces of ice, hundreds of feet high, sticking up out of the ground and coming up out of the ground all the time. Yeah. You could you could fall into a fissure and you would never be found. No one would ever find you. Mm. It's it's treacherous. You could never do it by dog sled. The only way to do it is to navigate the thin areas with an icebreaker of the class of the Arctica. 
something that can break three meters of ice and travel at eight knots in ice. That's the kind of ship that you need. And what about U-boats then? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've known a couple of, I interviewed a couple. I interviewed a corpsman and I interviewed a rear admiral, both of whom had navigated uh, the Arctic in a submarine. So, yes, it could absolutely be done. Uh, you can't take any measurements from a sub because you're under the water, so there's no information that you can gain other than, you know, sonar information. But the ocean up there is 4,400 meters deep, and a submarine can barely go 500 meters. Oh, right. So you, you're not going to get much of a picture. No. Uh, sonar, sonar doesn't work that way. You can do side-scan sonar. That is technology that's available. And we have done as deep as, as, uh, as 1,500 meters with side-scan. But it's very slow. I mean, Antarctica landmass is basically, you know, figured out by sonar, isn't it? Yes. Well, a Antarctica is a landmass. It's a continent covered in snow. And then some of that, you know, extends out onto the ocean. But the Arctic is not a landmass. It's it's open ocean covered in like a glacier. It's a totally different structure for the Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about icebreakers. Uh, are there still icebreakers that could do this? Yes. Uh, there were three of them at one time. Then the Yamal was retired. It was very old. Then the 50 Years of Glory was retired. Then the Captain Kalibnikov, it's still seaworthy. But they've just built a new ship called the Arctica. And it is a new nuclear-powered ship, 450 feet long, 75,000 horsepower. And uh, it is capable of making the trip, and it's brand new. It was just built last year. That's excellent news. Because I heard that the last one was going to be commissioned. So Yeah, the the uh captain kalibnikov which is a 1968 i think era ship used to be one of the soviet uh, icebreakers it was purchased and now belongs to a company called the murmansk shipping company uh and they used these old icebreakers as exploratory ships but when you run a reactor on a boat for that long, eventually the iron of the ship becomes radioactive. And so the ships have to be decommissioned. Mm -hmm. But the new ship is called the Arctica, spelt with a K. And it is, a, is quite the vessel. Hmm. And that's possible for private uh, hiring? So uh, you can actually rent that? Yep, you have to plan a couple of years in advance. It's about three million American uh, to rent it for 15 days, and that's what we plan to do. Okay, tell us uh, about this. First of all, um, tell us uh, about the original, uh, because you, you kind of were dragged into this project, weren't you? I was. Uh, as I told you, we, we had written the arc of millions of years, and the idea that Earth was hollow, came up, and we researched it, and we kind of ran up against the dead end. There were not many, not much information at all in 2004 about that none of these experiments had been done yet. So I thought, well, <clears throat> what I need to do is probably I need to go on a, an expedition to the Arctic. So I, I began to do research, and I found that there was 
an, uh, an adventure coming up <laughs> in yeah. 2006. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll join. So I, I joined up. And at that time, it was being run by a man named Stephen Curry, who was had already done several expeditions to different places. He was a, a wild man, but he was he lived in Salt Lake City. And I met, I talked to him on the phone, and we we decided to pool our resources. And I joined the expedition. I was going to work on the gyroscopes to measure the curvature of the Earth to see if we could find this opening. And then in the summer of 2006. I spoke to him in November, and then in the summer, all of a sudden, he dies of rapid-onset brain cancer. Boom. Just gone right, like that. Right. And, so, and, and that, that was public, that he was the head of this expedition, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And they had the funding at that point. Well, no. What they were doing was they were they were selling tickets for about $22,000 a piece. And they had some people that had purchased tickets. And that's how they were going to raise the money to do it. And in those days, it was going to cost about $1.8 million or $1.9 million to rent the Yamal to do it. And uh, what it was shaping up, we were, we were getting a, a roster of rich tourists. And um, anyway, he passed away suddenly. So they refunded all the money to the people who had put up their money. And then they, the board called me and said, look, you, you do big projects all the time. You do these big plans for the, the big companies. You're used to doing projects of this size. Why don't you take over as expedition leader? Mm. And so I said, well, let me think about it. This is like August or September. So in October, I called them back and I said, I, I think I can do this. So let's see if we can do it. This is 2006. Let's plan for 2008, the summer of 2008. We'll do a pilot film. I invested some of my own money, and we traveled around the world and to these different places, and we took film and took evidence, and we produced a pilot film. We competed in 2007 in the Genes of Galileo contest in Tokyo, Japan, and we won, and we won some money, and we won some notoriety. We had 11, 17,000 people watched our film that night. And our 17 million, I'm sorry, 17 million people saw our film that night. So I thought, okay, we're, we're off, we're running. Well, there was no such thing as crowdfunding or any of that in those days. Mm. But, you know, we, we uh, did 20 cities in 12 months trying to raise enough money, and we, we just fell way, way short. Because the economy in 2008 was in the crapper. <laughs> Nobody was investing in anything. Everything was upside down. Yeah. So uh, I did a couple of energy projects. I built a biodiesel plant and started building electric cars. And I'm still doing electric vehicles. Um, and and so we kept trying every year after that. And then it just it just became after I had you know nearly a hundred thousand dollars of my own money in it. I just decided that it was not feasible to do. So. You know, I've been, just been kind of gathering information ever since then. And now we've finally, the economy is turning yes. and we've got some companies that are interested in sponsoring us. And we've got some researchers out of Australia that have contacted me. And now it looks like we're beginning to get them. Open. Yeah, but you've been very tied to this sponsor paradigm. And, and of course, that works. Uh, but the problem with it is that you are in the mercy of the money bag. That's one thing. Uh, but the other is that you are also in the mercy of 
the economy, as you say, if you do a full crowdsource or both, then all it takes for the crowdsourcing model is to get the word out enough. And oh, yeah. To, to, raise, to raise three and a half million dollars by crowdsourcing? Oh, my gosh. You would need you would need at least 50 million email addresses, maybe 70 <laughs> million. <laughs> I don't know anyone who has a database like that. And you can't, no. use, you can't use Facebook or anything like that, even though there's billions of people on it. Yeah. No, that's you, controlled. You couldn't afford the reach. It, it would cost you $100,000 a month to do something like that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just thinking if, if you could get the word out enough, you know, so people could... Um, uh, because most people would chip in something if they thought something would come out of it. But if I, you know, if I thought we could get um, global television coverage for ten minutes, we probably could. Yeah. But uh, yeah. you know, we I've been on Discovery Channel, History Channel, National Geographic Channel, True TV, Science Channel. They yeah, but every time, have you said to them, hey, we're crowdsourcing, please support this project? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we okay. did Coast to Coast. We did 13 shows on Coast to Coast about Hollow Earth, and, and we tried to do crowdsourcing. And, you know, we'd raise a few thousand dollars in a in a show, but the, okay. uh, nothing like you need to be able to do something like this. Mm. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, uh, someone who tried to do something similar only for the South Pole was Harry Cooper, who is uh, leader of Shark Hunters. It's an interest organization for veterans in U-boats and also uh, eagle hunters for planes, especially World War II. And he has uh, American veterans. For example, he had this, uh, what's he called, this NASA guy who was NASA whistleblower. I forgot his name. Uh, anyway, he has had some famous people, uh, Soviet Russians, Americans, British, and even Nazis, old Nazis, even people who was on the original bird expedition in Antarctica and on the original Alfred Richter, you know, the Nazi expeditions. Sure. And he was fed up with all these rumors and myths about the pole. And, you know, he heard his share, especially through the Nazi thing and the bird thing. So he finally decided, I'm going to muster uh expedition. And he's very down to the earth man. So uh, he did this. He got uh, support. Uh, he got some big shots. Uh, yeah. Talked a little bit about it. He shouldn't have done that. He should have kept shut about it because Curry or whatever he called the, the guy you talked about, he got the brain cancer thing, right? That's one way to take people out. But <laughs> in this case, it was much more primitive. They went to the biggest sponsor, an old lady, and they killed her dog and they broke her knees. And what? Yes, and suddenly nobody wanted to talk with Harry anymore of those people who he had. He had scientists, everything, all doors closed. It was just a, a, an atmosphere of terror, of fear. I'm gonna, I haven't edited that program yet. I'm gonna air it soon. Uh, I, I think we'll air it after this one though. But he complains there about how his project fared. 
And I've told Cliff when we had the Antarctica program about the two polar expeditions of Norway, what happened with them when they came too close. One is Berserk of, uh, uh, what's his name? Jarl uh, And the other is Monica Christensen. I can't recap them here now. It will be boring for the listeners that have heard these stories. Okay. But I'm telling you, Brooks, you better have like 24 hours live to the internet kind of coverage when you, you finally get this off. <laughs> well, it's hard to do because there's no, uh, there's no way to upload to satellite uh, except, you know, for two hours each day. So what we, what we were planned on doing was running cameras 24 hours a day. We figure in 15 days we can get about 3,000 hours of, of yeah. film. And then what we were going to do is upload that every time the satellite comes over, upload the packets and then download it to a server in Europe and a server in the US or in Canada and then sell that space for, I don't know, $19. You could watch the whole expedition live, like a big reality program happening right before your eyes. And, uh, of course, we would get way, way more footage than what you could stream live. And so when we got back, we would do the post-production work and then put out a maybe a 13-piece series on Netflix or Hulu, Amazon. If you come back. <laughs> because if you find something there that's really worth showing, not just scientific oh, stuff, gosh. do you think they will allow you to air it? They couldn't stop it because it's if it's going to go live, that's the thing. Every two hours we upload whatever we see. That's that's how you get the buy-in. You say, look, we're not going to mm. hold anything back. You know, you're, we're going to have a hundred scientists from all over the world in the roughest waters on planet Earth for fifteen yeah. days away from civilization. This is going to be a reality program that will make deadliest catch look like last man standing. <laughs> right. Yeah, and if you can muster this thing, it will be, I mean, wow, people will sit glued to that. Yes. And even if something should happen, let's say an accident or something, at least we will see what, you know, led up to that point. Although I don't think they can disappear you if you're going to be in a friggin' icebreaker. Hey. That's that's a hard thing to disappear. Right. <laughs> That. And no ship that can that can be up there. I mean, maybe a submarine, but there's no ships that can go up there, and there's no fighter jets that can go that far out either. There's no. He is no. You'd have to you'd have to have a long range plane to to intercept us out there. But we're talking about surveying ten thousand square miles in fifteen days. It's very very aggressive, and these seas have never been seen ever. It's like going to a different yeah. planet. And we might only see whales and ice. And you know what? I'm cool with that. But what if we do find something that's anomalous? Everyone will want to know. That's that's why we, we want to do it. I, I think if you I, I think the obstacle, the challenge is to get on that damn boat. It's to get the money and then get on the boat. As soon as you're there you will, because there's a reason they are closing off all the, you know, one, one of the listeners after Antarctica program, he told me that his father was stationed uh, at the pole uh, in Tula, Greenland, uh, the US military base there in 53 and 54. 
Yes. Yeah, U.S. Air Force. And he said that he made multiple trips to the North Pole and he had pictures of him standing on icebergs next to icebreaker ships and stuff. And he said that he was shaken by his experience. Uh, as soon as he got back, they moved to South Texas, <laughs> as far away, I guess, as you can get. And he was uh, traumatized. He never slept well. Nightmares about yeah. mon- monsters, stuff like that. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm telling you, this is, yep. these are areas that have not been seen before. It's not been touched by, by humankind uh, for a long, long time. We might have had one or two people in the military, like you say, Tule Greenland, mm-hmm. you'd, get, you'd get quite a view. But we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles away from that, all the way up to an 86 degrees north, way over like 140 degrees east. That's that's no man's land. No one's ever been there. Yeah, but do you know that you have the permission from the Russian authorities to go there? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the Russian shipping company wants to joint venture it with us. They're excited about doing it. Wow. So, so Putin and company won't stop you like the Americans would? Not at all. They're 100% behind us. Yeah, but I, I think they must know. I mean, they have. why don't they just take their own ship and go and, well, maybe they have. Maybe they have, but it's never been yeah. done that I know of. It's never been filmed. No. Okay. Well, when it gets anything close to that, you come back and we'll have a, an entire show about that. And, and, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But because here's an open door for that, and you'll get uh, 100,000 viewers just for that. So this Cooper guy I told you about, maybe you should, uh, you know, maybe you should get in touch with him because he had... Even though it was for the South Pole, he had contacts. He had like, you know, he had prepared for this to some extent. So I don't know if you, you do cooperation, but who knows? Put at least exchange experience couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt. I just uh, hope her knees have healed up. <laughs> That's what. I- yeah. Well, that was one of his sponsors. So yeah, yeah, it could be risky to. Put your hand into that uh, Pandora's box, but uh, I'll send this show to him. Yeah. A couple of the neat things about this project. Uh, The first is the passion that I get from people about the hollow earth. People are really, really passionate about it. And the other thing is over the last 10 years, I have amassed probably more hollow earth information than anyone alive. And a lot of it is, is stuff no one else has seen. So it's really, it's enriched my life. And I want to, I want to return the favor. Uh, when I produce a book or produce a film where we actually do this expedition, it, I, I plan on returning the favor. I'm going to give everything I have to the people who are interested in this subject because it's so enriching. It really, you know, it, it ties us. It is something about it that goes straight into our core. It resonates with so many people. And, you know, truth usually does that. Sure. I mean, there must be a reason that this has been in the ancient lore. And I'm going to have another chap on. I don't know if you know about him, Harry Hubbard, but he has maps. And he's going to cover more about the mythical parts and the ancient parts of the whole world thing. That's why I didn't press you too much on it today, because you can present the scientific part. But there is something about this that really entices 
uh, idealists at least, if not those skeptics. I think so. Yeah. And if we approach it right and we bring the right scientists on the boat, people are going to say, wow, they have MIT there, they have Stanford, they have Cambridge, they have, you know, they can't deny all of that. Exactly. And and as, as far as I understand it, you're also going to do traditional mainstream scientific tests, right? So it will pay anyway, scientifically. That's all we're going to be doing. Uh, we're, we might, you know, cover the more esoteric things in some of the camera lenses, but all we're going to be doing is mainstream experiments. Hang on. How can you even know when you get to the polls? Nobody of the, of the other people could know. How can we know? Well, it's not it's not the poll, but it's the opening, and that's a very good question, because we've brought that question up many times. How will we measure when we're actually crossing into, you know, like a low place in the sea? The only way to measure that is going to be with a precision gyroscope, like the same kind of gyroscope that's used to aim missiles. So this is not going to be easy to do. It's not going to be easy to get on the boat. But we're going to be able to actually measure the curvature of the Earth with this ship. And that's going to be a very important measurement. I don't think it's ever been done before. Hmm. So not sextants this time. Not sextants. <laughs> but before we leave today, I want us to first go back to the book we've been referencing off and on here. It's The Ark of the Million of Years. It's an interesting title. It dawned upon me what's it referring to. But maybe you want to... The Ark of Millions of Years is what Noah called his ship. Wow. That's what he called it, The Ark of Millions of Years. And so we named the book after that. And uh, actually, all the books, all, all four volumes, it's the Arc of Millions of Years series. There's about 2,000 pages in it uh, from start to finish, all four volumes. But it's uh, it's nonfiction, so it can get a little dry. But-, yeah, but hang on, hang on. Isn't it a wordplay, too? Because there's like an arc that goes through million of years, like an arc in a movie. Well, the idea was that the the planet that Noah lived on actually did travel across space to get here. Right. That, would that be the moon? <laughs> Some things. Oh, the moon was here. The moon it was already in orbit around this. Oh, okay. And in fact, we could make a very effective case that the moon doesn't really orbit around Earth. It orbits around the sun. Ah, yeah. Parallel with Earth. Right. Right. Right, right. I've heard about that too. Okay, so so you made that book. And in which of these um, numbers are the Hollow Earth covered? It's in volume two. It starts in chapter two in a chapter called The Dimensions. And then it's mentioned from there all the way through to the end of uh, volume three. Volume four is kind of a catch-up. Some of the prophecies that we or predictions that we made in the first three volumes, we update a lot of those predictions that did come true mm. over the period of time. Then there is remembering the future, the physics of the soul and time travel, which is uh, some of the discoveries that we that I made in writing those books. And then alienated nation, which is about uh, the convention of states, and then. I wrote a trilogy called the Birth Trilogy, B-E-A-R-T-H. And that also covers the Hollow Earth, but it is fiction. Oh, right. But it is a remarkable story 
Uh, um, in fact, it's being made into a movie right now. We're working on the screenplay. Nice. My, my last book is called Charm of Favor, and it is all about this agency government that we've been talking about. I'm going to talk more about, but why don't you write uh, just a scientific case for a hollow earth? It would be a bestseller because of all the books out there, there are some good books, some serious books, but but nothing close to, uh, you know, a primer on the hollow earth. Yeah. Usually hollow earth is mentioned as a byproduct or as a part of something, or it's very, very speculative. Um like a pulp fiction, pulp fact, or it's n- religious nutcases. So, I mean, there's a market for a Hollow Earth book. Have you thought about that? Definitely. And I have enough notes. I have enough data to put together a heck of a book, maybe four or 500 pages. Uh, right now, at this moment, I am under an agreement with the film company not to produce a book at this time. But mm-hmm. that is going to change pretty soon. So I'm not saying that it will come out this year, but I definitely am working on a book. Excellent. Hark my words, they will come true. I mean, you heard it here first. It's going to sell, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and they can get this on Amazon, I presume? Oh, yes, you can get it at Amazon uh, in Kindle version, and you can get it in Barnes & Noble in Nook version. The books are available through authorhouse.com, authorhouse.com. That's where you can buy the paperbacks and hardbacks. Okay. I think you've delivered pretty well. Uh, I mean, it's limited how deep we can go into a subject, even in a long-form interview. But I think we covered most bases regarding the theory, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I have a great... 90-minute presentation that I make in person. So if there's anyone in Norway that wants to bring me to Norway to make a presentation, I'm willing to answer all your questions cool. in person. With You mean presentation with uh, slides and stuff like that? With the slides and film and music, and mm. it's it's quite powerful. I assume you're not just doing this in Norway. The invitation would be valid anywhere, right? Yeah, the invitation's valid anywhere. I'm going to be at uh, DisclosureCon the 5th and 6th of October and Stargate of the Cosmos on the 26th to the 29th of October. And I have another episode of Beyond Belief uh, TV coming out with Gaia TV pretty soon. Yeah, but you're an all-arounder, so it's not not always about uh, Hollow Earth, is it? No. Your presentations? Not always, but they always ask me to do an update. I do. Because you're the guy now, you know. It's not a big competition in that field. You you actually deliver. Uh, Oh, yeah, and you have a radio show. Tell people about that. Every Sunday night from 8 to 11 Eastern Time, Eastern U.S. Time, X Squared Radio is live. It is free live. It's also free for the archive if you want to listen to last week's program. Each week is free for a week. And then, of course, the archives are are a pay per listen. But uh, we talk about this all the time. Mysteries of the universe and the earth, just like you do. Yeah, philosophy, science. But uh, I've noticed you finally come on the new media, too, because I saw you had a channel on YouTube. Do you put some of your 
radio shows there or is it other stuff you're putting there? I, I put other stuff in there, but I do put an hour of the three-hour program. I put some of that on YouTube just to kind of introduce people to me. But I don't have a big YouTube following. I have less than a thousand followers on YouTube, so no, it uh, will come. It will come. There, there's a taster there at least, so they can see if they want to move forward to your radio show. They can go there first. Well, one of these years I'm going to retire. I have three companies that I own, and so I'm busy constantly you know with the manufacturing plant yeah, or yeah. publishing or something like that one of these days i'm going to retire and i'll spend more time on getting the information out there to the social media yep and finally do you have a website yes uh, the central website is x squared you can also get everything by going to brooksagnew.com and i would just love it if you followed me on twitter and Facebook. Easy enough. Same name, Brooks Agnew. Right. And when we put up the presentation page of you at our site for guests, we're going to link all these things there so they can find it there too. That's great. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you want to uh, mention that you're up to before we call it a day? Uh, well, I am working on uh, the birth trilogy as a, as a film. So the screenplay is being written uh, Monday. The first episode goes to the what we call the screen doctor. It goes through and find all the mistakes and things that are missing in it. Yep. And then we're going to start shooting. So we'll, hopefully this will come to the at least the little screen. And uh, you're going to get to see this. No movie like this has ever been made before. Can you say what it's about? Yeah, this is, this is about uh, the union of the polarity. It's so everything in the book is true, but I put fictional characters in there to take you through the process. Mm. It's what would happen if Ridley Scott directed a movie of Tom Clancy's book. That's that's (laughs) Scott means Clancy. Okay. (laughs) It's Clancy. Right. Maybe, maybe Scott will do the follow up. (laughs) If number one succeeds. I tell you, it would be a good movie for him to uh, direct. No question about it. Yeah. I expect a trailer will come first. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, There's no trailer yet, is there? Uh, no. Okay. And by the way, all the books that I am offering, they're all available in audio. Oh. So if you buy the paperback or the Kindle or Nook version, I will give you the audio for free. Does it follow instructions how to attain the audio? Absolutely. It's written right in the front of the book. You buy the book, open it up. There's the instructions. Cool. I'll give you the audio book for nothing. That's excellent. Um, and if any you know, blind people are listening, <laughs> there's your solution. I have a lot of blind people that have listened to the audio book and they love it. No, but I mean, blind people. I usually do audio too, especially back when I used to drive from Oslo to Bergen. That's a seven-hour drive in summer, nine in the winter. Wow. Couldn't have done it if it wasn't for all the audios. So it's perfect for that. People who go in and rambling in the nature or... Yeah, absolutely. Or traveling back and forth to work. So it's, yeah, it's a good thing. And we may turn it into a video just to get the hits up. Sometimes uh, one of our video makers, we can't make every show into a video, but they know what's coming and, uh, you know, what footage do they have? What are they enjoying themselves? 
So I, I'm, I'm suspecting they may want to make this into a video. If that happens, it will be delayed. But the payout is that it will double the amounts of people. Because if pe- people are lazy, right? If they can watch, that's always better than just listening. Well, that's why I do the audiobooks, because a lot of people will not buy a book but they'll listen to it. That's Yeah, that's an upgrade. Yeah, it starts with nobody reads anymore. Twice as many listens and twice as many as that even watch. <laughs> and speaking of trailers, uh, you're aware of the, what's it called? Iron Sky Universe. You're aware of that? No. Well, n- film number one was excellent. It's, it's comedy, science fiction comedy. They were... Loved it. It was a great movie. You saw that? Nazis on the moon? Okay, Nazis. The next movie is Nazis Inside of the Earth. Get out of here. I got to see it. Well, the trailer is already out. And I'm, I'm going to blow the fun for you already. I'm going to say that when they get there, they see Hitler, who he's, he's a transhumanism. They revived him with, you know, like a Frankenstein monster with stuff on. And he's riding, <laughs> he's riding a dinosaur. And <laughs> <laughs> what's it called? Iron what? Uh, Iron Sky 2. I forgot the subtitle. Okay. Um, something about inner earth or hollow earth. Iron Sky was a cr- it was insane. I loved it. it was wonderful. I know. So they took this pretty realistic thing about the classified space program and they made it into a, and now they're taking this other far out yet realistic thing and they're making a thing out of it. So I don't know. Uh, I, I'm hoping for your sake that they went into the South Pole because I don't think you want to encounter a Hitler on a dinosaur on the North Pole. <laughs> no. <laughs> So with that image, I bid you adieu for now. Three hours, four hours, three and a half, I guess. We start at 12. So that's quite a marathon. Yeah, that's fine. Are you sitting in your radio studio, by the way? No, I'm I'm actually sitting in a hotel room, but it's I bring my studio with me. Oh, like that. Yeah. Okay, Brooks. Let's call it a day then. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Al. And thank you very much for coming on. Very good, my friend. Have a great weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and appreciate that we take on some mysteries now and then. Yeah, you know, it's healthy to trigger the old imagination bone. Keeping an open mind, very important. Now you may criticize us for keeping it too open, but, you know, armchair naysayers means nothing when it comes to truth. Only boots on the ground. Hard verification. So scoffers are usually a detriment to truth. They never wear a hat in anything pushing forward a paradigm, bringing civilization and knowledge forth. On the contrary, they've always been useful idiots for the powers that be, those who have a vested interest in keeping the status quo and monopolizing whatever is in their interest to know that we don't know. I'm reminded of a couple of quotes in this relation. I mean, I could quote you to death now, but I'll just give you a couple. You have John F. Kennedy who said, the problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. 
we need men who can dream of things that never were. And then you have Francis Bacon who said, if a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. So let's hope Brooks and company will finally muster this expedition. I mean, it's moving a mountain and it's our obligation i think our duty to support it if and when they get to a level where they need our support if nothing else then keep attention to it hopefully they they get the money from sponsors but we can keep attention to it so it is justified in terms of viewership and indeed maybe Maybe if the world's eyes are on such an expedition, we are also contributing to saving their very lives. Now, I'll not get too paranoid uh, in conspirations here now. Um, we will fulfill this topic in future programs because it's one of my pet paradigm challenging scenarios. It's an old story that just won't go away. And the trouble with it is... That if you look deeply enough into it, I mean, what we did today is just superficial. What can be covered in a couple of hours? But I encourage you to to delve deeper into it and and see for yourself. And and the problem with it is that it does, unlike Flat Earth, I mentioned this in the show, unlike Flat Earth that requires you to turn 180 degree around, it requires you to dismiss uh, lots of established facts and take a lot of leaps and etc etc now unlike that this actually fits in with our current paradigm you do not have to divorce the entire science just to make the whole of earth theory fit inside the box you just have to alter the box a little or open the box maybe because indeed it does extend, it does fill up some of the holes, give some answers to some of the mysteries out there. So, you know, I see no good reason why no, not to thought experiment with this. And, you know, it's fun <laughs> and entertaining, so no harm done. Now, we won't do too many of these kind of shows this year, uh, 2019. Of course, we have... Uh, some other tracks I want to go down and do a little more spirituality and a little more politics, social realism. Uh, that little neat dichotomy will be followed, but we will do maybe some ancient mysteries in between. Uh, and, and we return to it uh, more of this uh, maybe the year after. I mean, we intend to do all our series and we will never stop any of the tracks we're on. It's just that when we're riding many parallel horses, we have to change horse from time to time. That's all. So hope you will stay with us for also the less sensational topics. We can't just do phenomenons. We have to do ideas also. And events, which are pressing nowadays. 
I feel it's my duty to contribute to to some of the more politically programs, and we'll have Brooks back to shed some lights on that too, because he has written books on that, and I do hope his book on the Hollow Earth will come. Uh, it should be an excellent source in that he will contribute uh, some of the more sober scientific perspectives. God knows there's enough myth-based and religion-based takes on it on the internet and for most of us that's not good enough now one last thing before i leave you for today i just want to explain to you something that people seems we get got many new listeners and and they don't know how this works we get criticized for promoting uploads to our sponsor section. Now, let me explain to you how this works. Bella tells you in every break, she says, that all our main shows are free. Nothing has changed. It's true. However, we cannot upload directly to YouTube. We have to put videos to it, if nothing else than those annoying, moving images. Now, that takes time. It takes resources and the audio files we share at our website as mp3 files as soon as they're they're done, completed. And they they wait until we can catch a break and, and get them out on video and then we flood them out to YouTube. Now, in the meantime, if you sponsor us, if you donate, then you will get access to all these shows as soon as they're up as mp3 without having to wait for them at YouTube. That's all. And we have to have a buffer. We can't upload and then put it out on YouTube. We, we did that in the beginning and it can result in months without anything happen. So we have a certain amount of buffer. I think we have 10, 15 unreleased show at any given time. So we guarantee five. But it seems to be steady resting on 10 to 15. So that means when you sponsor us, you get access to the private section, the login section of a website. And there, voila, you can find all the unreleased shows uh, as far as YouTube concerns. But of course, we also have some extra bonus stuff. Now, we have that as an incentive. It doesn't mean that we really have a big membership thing going and stuff like that. Um, Not so concerned with that. So that's not why we do it. But let's face it, it, it really works as an incentive. So eventually it gets flooded further to the tube. And before you criticize us for having uh, programs there, on our website that's not yet on the tube why don't you go and criticize everyone else 99% who just releases part 1 and retains permanently part 2 for the members or indeed make entire shows that they don't let the public get access to that's how what you're criticizing works that's what they do and then you come to us who actually shares everything try to no you you, you're misunderstanding so that should be now be considered debunked and you should now understand how we operate we do share everything and for the simple reason that i as well as you are annoyed whenever there's an interesting show and the rest is not available i mean sure i understand why they do it i do not criticize that they want to make money they want to survive fine 
But you, you know, me, you as listeners, we can't support everything and anything out there, right? So for that very reason, we decided early on, nope, we are going to share everything, sooner or later at least. In the meantime, if you sponsor us, you get access to the website and you get first dips on everything. And since we always make new shows, you know, we release some new shows come in. So there will always be stuff there. So you will get first access to that buffer of 10 to 15 shows. And I think that works well as a model of operation. Um, I think it's much better than than separating it into two classes so get that that's how we do it okay regulars of course know this but now newbies should too okay that marks the end thanks again to brooks for joining us and sharing with his time and expertise and thank you for keeping us going with your supporting us and making the forum viable spread the word we need more listeners we need much more listeners because that's the only way we can get on interesting guests who can get the forum treatment so if you're if you like the format if you like me to dig deep with bigger names out there, you have to do your part. We cannot do it without. Your host has been Al, and together with my excellent team, until next time, you have our sincere regards. Peace. Number one.